Holy Spirit, re-inspire these words. to give us life. For Christ in his glory we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to tell you the story of three exoduses. You probably only can think of one, but I want to tell you about three this morning. Exodus most literally means the road out. And most often we think of exodus that occurs when something drastic or undesirable or hostile is is going on, like a mass exodus from a war-torn country or a catastrophic event or people moving out of California. (laughs) Those aren't the three exoduses, by the way, I'm going to talk about. So let me talk about the first exodus just to get us right out of the box this morning. If you've been in church for any length of time or or been around the Bible uh, Exodus is a familiar word, and you think of the person of Moses, the Hebrew people escaping Egypt and crossing the Red Sea on dry ground. I think I first heard this story in the basement of that Sunday school class back in Ohio when Mrs. Ryder had the flannel graph. Anybody flannel graph people? You cut them out and you put up little Moses, and you've got the image in your mind. I'm not going to do a flannel graph. That was probably maybe pre-PowerPoint, I guess, is where we did that. I don't know what that was. But that's what comes to mind when I think of the story of Moses. You may remember that Moses was born into a hostile time when the Egyptian pharaoh wanted to kill all the Hebrew boys. And in in an effort to protect him, his, his mother put him in a basket and put him in the Nile River and hoped for the best. Pharaoh's daughter comes along and rescues him. And then Moses was raised as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's house. Later in his life, seeing the injustices that were raised against his own Hebrew people, he killed an Egyptian, and then he fled. Many years later, at the age of around 80, he encounters God at at the burning bush, where God tells him to, to go back to Egypt and to rescue his people who were enslaved by Pharaoh. Moses is reluctant, you recall. He says, I can't do this. And God says to him, tell them I am sent you. So he went back to Pharaoh and he administered those 10 plagues, ending with the plague of the the death of every firstborn of the Egyptian sons. And to protect the Hebrews, they were instructed to cover the doorposts, you remember, with with blood so that the angel of death would would pass over them, right? The Hebrews are finally released, and Moses leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea to begin their journey to the Promised Land. He led them, because of their disobedience, on a circuitous 40-year journey through a wilderness where God faithfully provided manna. God gave the prophet Moses the Ten Commandments and the subsequent moral and spiritual laws to govern the people. And these are found in our First Testament, the Old Testament, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we know that as the, the law or the Torah, the law. And it was everything to the Jewish mind, to the Jewish people, to the Hebrews. 
At the end of Deuteronomy, we read that Moses got to see the promised land, but he was not allowed to enter it. And he was okay with that. It would be the role of Joshua, or in Hebrew, Yeshua, to cross over the Jordan out of the wilderness into the land that God had promised. But it is Moses who is seen as their spiritual father, their prophet. Deuteronomy 34, you're just lucky I didn't read all of the Torah. We're just going to end with it. End of 34, since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. And this is the story of the first exodus that is encountered that is recounted, retold every year in the spring of the year in the feast of the Passover. And this serves, you're probably wondering why we're telling this story, but this serves as the backdrop for our text this morning in John chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you'll turn there with us this morning as we work our way through this text this morning. So that was the first exodus Let me introduce you to the second exodus this morning. To understand it a bit more clearly, uh, we need to back up a bit in the story of John. And if you go to 5.16 and following, you'll read a discourse or an encounter that Jesus is having with the Jewish leaders. We find him in conversation, if you will, a rather hostile conversation with them. These strict followers of this law of Moses that we were just talking about. They were confronting Jesus because because according to them, he was breaking all these laws. He could not possibly be a holy man. Jesus gives testimony about himself, declaring who he is and why he's come. And then he says this, verse 45 of chapter 5. But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is going to be Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Well, simply the, the word accuser here, it's a legal term, meaning that when, he, when, when they stand before their judge, Jesus really won't have to say anything because what they've been depending on will not be acceptable to the, to the judge. All the works will fall short because Moses' law is incomplete. They will be found guilty no matter how hard they try. How does the law accuse? Interestingly, by God's providence, we, we read that text this morning uh, in Romans that gives one indication. It says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law, Paul says. I delight in the law in my inmost self. I, I, I really love it, but I see my members in my members another law that I war with, the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin, dwells in my members. 
I just can't fulfill the law. So then, what follows in John chapter 6 is John's use of two specific stories in the life of Jesus that show how that first exodus that ushered in the law, while important, is incomplete and was simply, maybe I shouldn't use the word simply, but was a foreshadowing of a second exodus. Jesus has come to offer a second exodus which rescues all of humanity out of captivity and victoriously out of the wilderness of wandering. And like Joshua of the first, he will be successful in delivering all who follow him out of the wilderness into God's promised land, into the kingdom of God. So John uses his opening words to to set up Jesus as this Moses-like character very purposefully. Here are a few ways. If you want to follow along, I'll do them quickly. In John 6, verse 2, he shows that Jesus is like Moses. He is leading a crowd just like Moses. He has crowds following him. Why? Because he was doing miraculous signs just like Moses. Uh, John 6, 3, the disciples, like John, uh, Jesus and the disciples went up in the mountain, to the mountain, just like Moses did. And verse 4, the events took place when? At Passover. The feast of Passover, which we just reviewed. Remember the story of the Passover, commemorated the deliverance of God's people through Moses. The first story that John tells uh, is what we know as the feeding of the 5,000. Interestingly, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Maybe we should uh, sit up and take notice when those repeated things happen, right? The centerpiece of the story we're going to see is actually bread. And the parallel with Moses here is this. For Moses, manna from heaven was provided. But in Jesus, and we'll see this this week and next, that the true bread of heaven is provided. Uh, the bread of this story comes from five small barley loaves, which were kind of an early uh, seasonal bread noted to, to be carried uh, by, the, uh, by the poor. It was a cheap staple. It was really easy to come by. So these small barley loaves, probably different than the big uh, French loaves we see in our pictures, like right? five barley loaves. No, they were five very meager barley loaves and the, some small pickled fish that they would have carried in their basket. Seems a little ludicrous, right, for, for this to be what God's going to be providing, uh, used as the source for this. Had them all sit down, as we even read this morning, in this lush spring grass uh, offered during the spring when Passover takes place, which is a clue for us. And there's 5,000 people. Now, I don't know if we want to take that literally or figuratively, but either way, I'm going to take it literally. In fact, so literally that you do a little bit of math. They just do it with men when they count, right? Just the men. So it could have been fifteen to 20,000 people, um, probably not in a stadium like this, but that's 20,000 people. 
It's hard to get your brain around that, isn't it? But after all, he did have five barley loaves and two fish. We should be fine. Crazy. I just had to get that out of my head because it was knocking around in there. So after a typical, what may have been a typical blessing, uh, which may have gone like, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. What's Scripture tell us? Everyone ate until they were full. Let that sink in. Five little loaves, two fish. How, how do you think it happened? Did like everybody close when it was time to pray and they opened and suddenly it was there? Or did the disciples break it and start distributing the, th- throughout their little state? I mean, it's amazing just to think how they got the food. But we do know that everyone ate until they were full. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, go gather up the fragments. Now, these are the guys after the game that go in and start sweeping up, right? But they're picking up all these fragments of food. And I love this line, so that nothing would be lost. God's not wasting anything. So they gathered them all up and they, they, they filled, the 12, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who were eaten. Uh, anybody been to Israel? You, you may recognize this picture. Uh, there's a church in, uh, in Tabga uh, called Church of the Multiplication, which you can see where it got, got its name. And this is a mosaic on the floor of, of there. Um, I just think it's amazing that uh, this was a significant event. They built a church in the, in the mosaic. Some, something important happened here. It's not just a picture of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a picture of Jesus ushering in and inviting to a new exodus. This, this is a doorway into something greater than just eating fish and bread. And bread, by the way, was regarded by the Jews as a particularly significant representation, a gift of God. And it was required by the Jewish law, so he was fulfilling the law that everything gets picked up and be distributed appropriately. And so each of the disciples, the 12 of them, each had a basket that God filled uh, as they returned. And this is really an introduction to something we're going to hear next week, a declaration that Jesus is going to make about himself And we're going to explore it more fully, but let me give you a sneak peek what Jesus is doing here. If you look ahead to verse uh, 32 and 33, when he he multiplies the bread, he's alluding to something that's coming. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's why there's a mosaic of the fish and bread at the Church of the Multiplication. Well, understandably, when when the people saw these signs and what he had done, they said, ah, indeed, this is a prophet who has come into the world. Well, there's a second story that John includes uh, that's it's equally as fascinating. And the comparison here with Moses is that 
In, in the first Exodus, Moses parts the sea, but in this story, Jesus actually walks on the sea. So what is he saying? Well, after the baskets were collected, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, we, we might presume that, you know, we can see the disciples kind of walking down with their baskets and they loaded the boats, right? And headed out on the Sea of Galilee. The wind stirred up and the seas became rough. And suddenly, Jesus, who had been up on the mountain, shows up walking on the sea. He gets on the boat and what does the text say? What happens? He was, they were where? They were right at the shore. Gets in the boat. Boom. We're now safe. We're, we've arrived. So what's the big idea? He tells us. The big idea of this story. One, one writer put it this way. In the Old Testament, God used prophets to part the water. In the New Testament, God walks on them. He walks on what he has created. Job 9, 8 says, He alone stretches out the heavens and he treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus both shows and tells that he is God. He walks on the seas that he created. And in verse 20, he says, don't miss this. It is I. Do not be afraid. Because of our English sensibilities, we miss it. But if we were Greek, we would understand what Jesus said, making an audacious claim right here. It is I, ego ami, I am. Now, where have we heard that before? The first exodus, right? Before the Moses and the bush, tell them who sent you? I am. Jesus saying, I am the God of the sea. They're more than just words of comfort. They're a declaration of his divinity. Remember, tell them I am has sent you. Unlike the first exodus and the journey through the wilderness uh, where the promised land was not realized by Moses, we mentioned that before, Jesus declares as the leader of this second exodus, he says this, he says, I am the bread. I am the bread that will give you lasting life and it will sustain you forever. And, and I am the God who will bring you out of the wilderness, out of your wanderings, out of your tumultuous sea of life, and I will bring you safely to shore. I'll get you home. Moses couldn't complete it, but I will. The second exodus. Well, now there's a third exodus, and we should consider it this morning. Well, it's really the same as the second exodus. It's, it's the same exodus that Jesus offers, but I want to call it the third exodus this morning because I want it to apply directly to us. And the comparison is this. We are born working and working for, for God's attention, 
trying to obey the laws of God, but Jesus says, I've come in grace and truth to be your bread of life. Let's pull back just very, very quickly. We're nearing the end. Let's pull back from these stories for just a moment and be reminded of why John included these stories at all or any of his stories. You remember the purpose of John in John 20, 31? These are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why these stories are here. John's story on the life of Jesus, his miracles, the signs that he performed are so that you and I would believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And who is he? He's the bread of life. Not only does this miracle of Jesus point back to that manna moment with Moses, but it also introduces the seven, first of seven incredible statements that he makes about himself, that he is, he says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of heaven. I am the true bread. I I will never run out. I am the bread of life that is broken for you and for the sins of the world. And when we come to the table each week, the broken bread of Christ before us, we come to the table and remember that he is life. Jesus is who he says he is, and he is the great I am. He is not just a good prophet. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a a solid alternative so you can live your, your best life now. He's God. He's the second person of the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. As John begins the account of this whole story, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and he is the Word of God that was made flesh. You see, the law was, John says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth has come to us in Christ. John's story of the life of Jesus is so that you and I will not only believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but that he will do what he says he will do. And what will he do for us? He will feed us. In short, he will give us life. He is bread that will fully satisfy. He will fully sustain us in this life. It's not our family that fills us. It's not our career that satisfies us. It's not not you that fills you. It is Jesus. Psalm 107 verse 9 For he alone satisfies the longings of our soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. And when we receive him, when we say yes, when we make Jesus the main course of our lives, he is our fullness of joy. So he will feed us and secondly, he will lead us. 
He will lead us. He will complete the journey for us. He'll lead us out of our slavery, out of our sin and our rebellion. You know these verses. He is the only way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We know that. He leads us out of slavery. He also leads us out of this wilderness we are in, this wilderness of our brokenness. The life of the follower of Jesus is one of an already, but not yet. Do you know what I mean when I say that? An already, but a not yet. You see, because of his completed work on the cross, we, ha- we live in this hope-filled reality that it's all going to be okay. We, we actually are already citizens of a new kingdom. That's the already. It's already happening. But yet there's the reality that our lives are in this not yet. I, I, I still carry the, the burdens of life and I still experience loss and, and grief and brokenness. We live in a messy world of, of loneliness in this wilderness. And we wrestle around. We get discouraged and we get depressed. But I love the psalmist's encouragement. It says, even though I walk through the valley of this shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table. See the hopefulness of that? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. And my cup overflows. Surely, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The already and the not yet. You see, ultimately, ultimately, Jesus will lead us like Joshua into the new land, into the kingdom of God forever. Some years later, John, the gospel writer, writes of the reality of heaven. Can you believe we've gone from Genesis now all the way to Revelation this morning? This is amazing. John writes of a reality of this already not yet in the book in his vision of the revelation of God, where we see the risen and reigning Lamb of God. A revelation where there's a new heaven and a new earth, where there'll be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying. And together with the people of God who have been on journey, making this exodus with Jesus out of a wilderness, We will, together, we will sit at this table prepared before us with the Lamb of God, the bread of heaven, and feast forever. And I hope we're all there together. Let's pray. Blessed Lord Jesus, thank you for being our bread of life. Thank you for leading us through this life. Thank you for the hope that is ours because you have completed the work. We give you all praise and honor and glory. 
Thank you.